2 Samuel chapter 12, we continue making our way through this chapter, and we should finish it today, Lord willing. But in God's pronouncement of his judgment of David's sin, we saw the evidence, or we see the evidence of God's mercy in that, right? Although David deserved to die, God spared him from death. That's mercy. That's when God withholds from us what we truly earned or what we truly deserve. And on the other side of the coin that bears the image of God's mercy, we always find the image of God's grace. They're twins. They're inseparable. Where you find one, you will always find the other. God's mercy and God's grace work that way. 2 Samuel 12 is a very sober chapter in God's Word, and while we can see the evidence of mercy, finding the evidence of grace can appear to be challenging. I mean, what are you talking about grace in this chapter? Where do we see grace in this chapter? This is one of the heaviest, if not darkest, chapters in the Word of God, and We're talking about grace, but that's exactly what we're going to see in the second half of this chapter is you're going to see God's grace on vivid display and it's beautiful. But let's let's kind of build and work our way toward that beginning in verse 15. And Nathan departed unto his house and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died, and the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, While the child was yet alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said unto his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Now, what we have just read has led a a number of people, both uh, believers and unbelievers, to to really uh, question, if not challenge, the integrity of God, the the righteousness of God. Uh, Is God really gracious? Is He really merciful? Is He really loving? Right? And the struggle is found in the words, the Lord struck the child. That's tough. That's tough. That uh, tempts many to struggle. Uh, Human logic and reasoning will ask, why would God do that? Why would God strike this child? Well, God gives the answer in verse 14. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, and the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. So God's punishment, God's judgment 
was in response to David's sin, in response to his disobedience. I mean, God, God tells you that. To criticize God for his response to David's sin subtly blinds us to something that I think is very, very important. I think it blinds us to something that I think God wants us to make sure that we grasp, that God wants to make sure that we understand that the world, the flesh, and the devil conveniently try to tempt us to overlook and mitigate. And here it is. God despises sin, and it places us on dangerous ground with him. God wants you to know that. God despises sin. I mean, God has a problem with it. He has a massive problem with it. He despises it. And it places us on dangerous ground with Him. God wants us to know we must be careful. To try to accuse Him of unrighteousness here means that, listen, we minimize David's sin. That becomes the focus. We, we minimize it. Right? We reason, yes, what David did was wrong, but it, it didn't warrant such severe judgment. Yeah, God, I'm not arguing with you that, that he crossed the line, but, but did you have to go that far? Did you have to strike the child? That doesn't seem right to me. When that is our reasoning, the world, the flesh, and the devil have succeeded in their campaign to convince us that God can be blamed. The only problem with that is the Bible says that he is perfect in all his ways. The Bible also says that there is no unrighteousness found in him, so God is never wrong. Or God is never not right. You can never accuse God or blame God of, for anything. That sentiment not only expresses our ignorance of the depths of God's hatred of sin, but listen, it also expresses our ignorance of just how holy he is. If there is one thing that God would have you to know about him, it's not that he's loving. It's not that he's gracious. It's not that he's merciful. It's not that he's kind. It's not that he's long-suffering, although he is all those things. But there's only one trait in the Word of God that is given a threefold emphasis that speaks to the essence of who God is and what he is ultimately all about, and it is holiness. The Bible says, God says, I want you to know this about me, that it's not that I'm holy. It's that I'm holy, holy, holy. I, I want you to know that about me. And so when you're talking about sin and darkness, it is diametrically opposed to everything that God is and all that he is about. God has a passionate, righteous, zealous disdain for sin. He despises it. Consider some of these verses, 1 John 1, 5. This then is the message which we have heard of him 
and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There is no darkness at all in God. None. Revelation 21, 23, and the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. How holy is God? In the holy city, the new Jerusalem, there will be no need of the sun or the moon. Why? Because the glory of God and the Lamb of God will light it for eternity. That's some serious light. They will be able to light it for eternity. I don't have a vocabulary to try and capture for you how much light that is. You could give me 10 lifetimes and I could get 10 PhDs in each one and I could still never adequately try and capture for you how much light we're talking about. Acts 9, 3 and 4, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Acts 22, verse 11, and when I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of them that were with me, I came into Damascus. The light that Saul was exposed to was so powerful that it knocked him to the earth. And we're talking about just, (laughs) it knocked him to the earth and temporarily blinded him. Now, here's what we gotta understand. The light of God is omnipotent and holy. It is omnipotent and holy. God wants us to know this about his light, about his character. So when you bring covetousness, adultery, murder, and lying into the presence of the God who is light and no darkness at all, it helps you now to process his judgment of David's sin. When you see who he is, this is the same issue with hell on the lake of fire. You will never be able to make sense of, reconcile, understand the existence, the reality, the inevitability of hell and the lake of fire until you come to the place where you respect the holiness of God. It's not until you make peace with, and not just make peace with, but, but you, you possess a reverence for his holiness. That it was only Christ who could meet that standard. No one else. Everything and everyone else is just darkness. It's just sin. No one, nothing measures up. He is holy, holy, holy. 
And God wants us to know this. But here's what is also overlooked when we attempt to accuse God here. What about Uriah the Hittite? What about his family? What about his friends? What about his fellow soldiers? What about Bathsheba? What about her family? What about her friends? What about people who loved her? Trust me, everybody was watching. Once the news broke, and God is not only omnipotent, but he's omniscient, he's all-knowing. And so, because David is the king, does that mean that he is, he's exempt from the principles of sowing and reaping? Does that mean because he's the king, he gets to do the things that he did and, and just walk away? God's response to everybody was a resounding no. No, he's not exempt. No, he is accountable to me. He is accountable to my word. He's not special. But brethren, here's what is overlooked when the only thing that someone can see in the narrative about God is striking the child, and it is this. God's grace is amazing. God's grace is amazing. It's, and it's right here before you and me. It's amazing. You might be wondering, I'm sorry, bro, what did I miss? Because everything you've said so far, I, it's not screaming amazing grace to me. So please clue me in. I will gladly do so. I wonder if this sounds familiar. A son of David died in the place of someone who was clearly and grossly guilty of sin. I wonder if that sounds familiar. Yeah. Yes. The wages of David's sin, yes, it was death. The son that was born, though, listen, never possessed a a, a sinful thought, never spoke a sinful word, never committed a sinful deed. Yet he was the one who had to die. Is that not amazing grace? (laughs) Yes, it is. Additionally, the grace of God was given in that the child would not have to walk through life wearing the stain of his father's transgression. Can you imagine this, this, this boy, this young man, this, I mean, this would have been on him for his entire life. You're that child. Imagine the platform that would have given the devil to mock him and mock God. Through very hard circumstances, God was very gracious. I love Psalm 77, verse 9. Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. The answer was and is no. Praise the Lord. No, God is, God never forgets to be gracious. Aren't you thankful for that? I'm thankful for that. That God never forgets to be gracious. 
I tremble to imagine who I would be and where I would be if he did. If God, not that he can forget, but if God forgot to be gracious, I'm cooked. So are you. And God's grace over the child is going to go next level, as we're going to see. Verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. So if, if David was supposed to play the role of a victim who had been wronged by God, he didn't get that memo. Because he did not wave his hypocritical finger at God and demand to know why. Or how could you do this? He didn't get that memo. But in verse 20, when David ended his mourning and went to the house of the Lord and then followed that by eating. Listen, this is so, so critical. Listen, it meant that he had made peace with God's judgment. He made peace with it. Listen, and it also meant that he was moving on. What's done is done. What I did is done, and what God did in response to it is also done. That is seen in verse 23. But now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And again, that's another expression of the grace of God with this child. This child was with and is with God. Praise the Lord. And David made peace with that and took comfort in knowing that he would see him again. But here's what we observe about God's grace. And, and this, is, this one is... Uh, this, is, this, is a very, uh, this is a very sober point that we're about to make. Listen, God's grace is amenable. It's amenable. When we're talking about being amenable, it means that we are willing to accept something. Willing to accept something. Another way to say it is that this is where we make peace with something. When the child passed after David sought God for seven days, which was something he hadn't done in a year, <laughs> mind you, God's judgment and David's mourning were complete. 
Hence the number seven. It's done. It's complete. It's finished. It did not mean, listen, that David was being clinical or indifferent about the loss. It's not what it meant at all. Remember, he fasted and he seemed to have been on his face in a prostrate position for seven days. That's not clinical. <laughs> That's not being indifferent. That's desperate. That's, he was weeping and pleading and begging God to spare this child's life. He cared. He loved his, his son. He, can you imagine the guilt that he carried through all this? I mean, he, God, please. But when God said no, just like God said no to him in chapter 7, when he had in his heart to build God a house, God said no. What did David do? He accepted it. He didn't argue with God in chapter 7. Hey, that's in my heart. I want to build this house. Okay, it's going to be Solomon. Wow, okay. And the same here. David, the child is not going to live. And the child didn't live. I want to give you a few verses that I think it is so critical for us to embrace these, okay? Uh, you, you and I have to get these. We really do. Psalm 131, verse 1, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Psalm 139, verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Listen, one of, of our, one of our weaknesses, one of our vulnerabilities in a place like this where we're exposed to such Bible teaching, Bible study and classes and all of that, and praise God for that. And I, I, I'm not saying that we should not do any of it. I'm just saying that one of the vulnerabilities that comes with that is we can quietly deceive ourselves into believing that we can or we should be able to understand everything that God does or allows. I've got a verse for that. I, I, I've got, there's something I know about God's word where I can tell you why that happened. If you could do that, guess who you would be? You'd be God. You would be God. Psalm 131 and 139 were Psalms of David. And he made peace with the fact that that's never going to be the case. You can write Bible commentaries. <laughs> and there are going to be things that happen where on your best day, you can't throw a rock at it and try to mount a logical response to it. Forget about it. Listen, 
by God's grace, we can make peace with matters that are very hard to understand. That's it. When there, it's not if, it's when, because you live long enough and you're going to find yourself here, right? We all are. When you are there, it's not something that you need to understand, but it is something that you need to make peace with. That's the issue. That's the issue. You will only drive yourself mad or into a pit of deep misery when you try to understand something that God simply says, I just want you to make peace with it. I remember years ago, I mean, just in one of these just gut-wrenching valleys, hard, painful, and I thought, you know, I, I just, I, I'm going to read the book of Job. I know that, I know he went through some things like this, and, and somewhere in the back of my mind, quietly, I, I had this expectation that I missed something. That I'm going to get to the end of the book and there's going to be a verse or something that God says where it goes, ah, okay, makes sense. Or maybe even subtly, like maybe God kind of quietly apologizes. <laughs> like, Job, my bad, I, I let Satan take it too far. And I remember getting to the end of the book and I read it and it's like, it's over and I'm like, let me read that last chapter again. <laughs> no explanation, no apology. Let me, if I can, just address those who, and we thank God for you, you're discipling, you're counseling, you're leading others. Let me just caution you. One of the worst things that we can try to do is make someone understand something that they will never understand, and neither will you. Amen. You want to talk about doing some damage. So you're, you're going to jump in. because, And again, I get it. You love them. You're hurting with, with them. You're hurting for them. And so you, you want to comfort. You want to help. And so you start writing checks that can't be cashed. You start selling promises that God never gave. And so when that doesn't work out, <laughs> now what? Be careful. Listen, there have been times, and there will be times, but there have been times where I've been in situations where it is clear, study to be quiet. Amen. Just be here. Just be here. It might be something as simple as, hey, I'll be right back. I'm going to run and get you a nice cup of coffee from Starbucks. I'll be right back. And you get them a nice cup of coffee and you sit down. You're just there. You don't have to say anything. Just be there. Was this not the era of Job's three friends? We're going to get to the bottom of this. <laughs> and just, I mean, made a mess. Poured gas on a fire that was, I mean, flaming. 
Verse 24 and 25. Before we get there, let me, a good brother of mine said something to me years ago. Very profound. I'm thankful that God used him to tell me this. He said, I have made peace with the fact that God does not owe me an explanation on everything. Amen. That's a great place to be. You can demand all you want, but you're not going to demand or bully or manipulate God into trying to make something make sense to you that he doesn't want you to make sense of. He just wants you to trust him and just make peace with it. That God, you're always right. You're always good. You understand it all. I don't have to. And you don't owe me an explanation. That's what I was looking for with Job. Where's the explanation? (laughs) All right, verses 24 and 25. And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went in unto her and lay with her, and she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him, and he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name Jedidiah. Because of the Lord. Is that not good? Is that, isn't that good? And you read that, it's, it just feels, it's so comforting, so soothing. It's awesome. The proof that God had put David's sin away is seen in how the tone and the narrative has changed. It's changed. For the first time, Bathsheba is not referred to as Uriah's wife. Uh, Here, she's referred to as David's wife. God really had put his sin away. Listen, I I, I can't. My heart, I'll just tell you, you, you've probably picked up on it. With this whole conversation about Bathsheba, my heart breaks for her all these years later. This woman has lost her husband and a child in a year. What a year. That's tough. But once again, God's grace is on vivid display. He blessed David and Bathsheba with a healthy son. The the child that was born out of that adulterous act was very sick. Not Solomon. He gave Solomon or this child two amazing names. Solomon, God told uh, David, this would be his name. You see that in First Chronicles 22, 9. But here's the deal. Solomon means peaceable. Given where we've been in these last two chapters, doesn't peaceable sound good? Through Nathan the prophet, God also named Solomon Jedidiah. That means beloved of the Lord. So after a very dark and painful season, God now expresses peace and love to David and Bathsheba. There's comfort. David comforted her. Man, praise God. And not only that, this son would become the next king of Israel 
and continue the lineage of Christ. And not just that. Apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, this son would become the wisest man to have ever walked the face of planet Earth. So here we go. God's grace is abundant. Is it not? It's abundant. Ephesians 1, 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Riches of his grace. Ephesians 2, 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. God is rich in grace. But I need you to hear this. I need to hear it. Listen, our failures will never bankrupt the grace of God. Do you understand that? Your fail, listen, you don't, you can't fail in a hundred lifetimes enough to bankrupt God's grace. He's rich in grace. Now, that is not to issue license to sin. God forbid. I don't recommend that. That's the whole point we said earlier, right? God despises this thing called sin, right? And we are on dangerous ground when we go there. But we are flesh, and we do fall. Well, praise the Lord, man. God's got so much grace. Now, with all this going on in Jerusalem, the battle against the children of Ammon was still going on, and it was actually coming to a close. And Joab then sends word back to David to summon him to the battlefield because they were about to wrap this thing up, but he wanted David to come as the king of Israel and claim victory in the battle, which David was entitled to do. Israel had conquered these people, and David would bring them into the servitude of Israel. So he needed to be there. But the tone that Joab exercised made it clear that after the events with Uriah, I mean, Joab was already here. (laughs) You saw what happened back in chapter 3 when he was displeased with David making peace with Abner. And he goes behind David's back and murders Abner. We're going to see a lot more from Joab later. But now with this thing with with Uriah the Hittite and and what David did there, uh, all bets are off now. It's open season from Joab to David the king. David had lost credibility with him, and David was going to find it very difficult in the future to lead Joab. I've got dirt on you. Look at verse 27. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah, and I have taken the city of waters. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it. Now, watch this. Lest I take the city and it be called after my name. (laughs) 
That's Joab. That was Joab. It was. I mean, he understood that, that David needed to come and, 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 and get the victory. He's right there. Where he was dead wrong was in his tone. His tone to the king was out of line. You don't address the king that way. You don't do that. You don't threaten the king. He had no respect, no regard. As the picture of Joab continues to unfold, this was not his way of, as I've heard many say, well, I think he was just trying to re-engage David back into the battle. He was trying to restore him back into ministry. He was trying to encourage him or or bait him to, to get back on the field. Well, from what we are seeing, I think David was doing pretty fine. God's grace was abundant. <laughs> uh, David wasn't lying in Jerusalem moping, depressed. No, he was comforting Bathsheba, who's now his wife, and God had blessed him with a great son. And all. I mean, so that's not what was happening here. Nor do I believe it was an idle threat. Listen, had David not come... I have no doubt that Joab would have taken credit for it. Because that was who he was. Joab was all about Joab. You're going to see that very clearly as we keep moving forward. But what Joab misunderstood is what people like him often misunderstand, which is this. Just because we see a flaw in the person who is over us does not give us permission to disesteem them and their place over us. This is what Joab failed to understand. And it's ultimately going to cost him his life. David was still the Lord's anointed. And because of his place, Because of his role, Joab did not have the right to address him the way that he did. But David came and claimed the victory and subjugated the children of Ammon. And this is where we get to our final point. Look at verse 30. I'm wrapping up here. I know you're like, is he going to finish some time today? We're close. And he took their king's crown from off his head. The weight whereof was a talent of gold with the precious stones, and it was set on David's head. And he brought forth the spoil of the city in great abundance. So remember, this was the same king of the children of Ammon from chapter 10, King Hanan. Right? The same king who shamed the messengers of David. And so they're taking this crown, which weighed about 75 pounds, and and, and putting it on David's head as they had conquered them. But this is another picture. Again, you've seen by now, 2 Samuel is filled with David as a type of Christ. And this is another one because in John's vision, he saw Christ coming back at the second advent with what? Many crowns on his head. And you see David here having this crown put on his head. Revelation 19, 12 is a reference. But but here's the final point we're going to make about grace. And that is grace is altering. It's altering. That is, God's grace can change things. 
God's grace can change things. Believe it. It can, and it does. Comfort has shown up. So is peace. So is love now conquering and victory. Grace changes things. (laughs) It changes things. I've been meditating and praying over this verse this week. It's, It's meant a lot to me. God is speaking to me about it on a number of levels and and I don't think he's done with me yet. I think I'm going to be hanging out with God this week in this same verse, at least in prayer at a minimum. But Acts 11, 23, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. So word had reached the church in Jerusalem that God was doing something mighty in Antioch, that a number had believed and turned to the Lord there, so they sent Barnabas to check it out. And it was true. Barnabas goes and says, oh yeah, it is going down. It's happening here. God is doing something. God is doing a great work. But Barnabas did not see a great work at Antioch. What did he see? He saw the grace of God. He saw the grace of God. The grace of God was changing things. The grace of God was causing a great number to believe. It was was the grace of God that was at work. It was changing things. So here's the final point. Listen, the ultimate game changer for any hard situation is the grace of God. It's the grace of God. You're, you're hurting, you're struggling, you're, I mean, you, you've had this thing happen that is gut-wrenching and you can't make sense of it. The same grace of God that was working at Antioch can work today. Amen. And it changes things. It will alter that situation. It will alter your heart. It will alter your mind. It will. Lord, thank you for your word today about your grace. Lord, let us hide these things in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.